Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. It is so, so, so good to be back. I've been out the last few weeks on paternity leave. My wife gave birth to our first child, a beautiful baby girl, a couple days before opening day. So I've been out for a little bit, and I definitely miss talking about baseball, writing about baseball, and being here with all you, but I'm certainly glad to be back. We're still early enough in the season. As you know, we typically do a full American League preview podcast with JJ Cooper and a full National League preview podcast with Matt Eddy every year. With the timing of my daughter being born, we were not able to get it in before the season, but it's still early enough. We felt like we could look ahead at the American League and what's to come. And to do that, I am once again joined by JJ. JJ, first of all, it's good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Certainly been a bit of an adventure. I was uh, joking with JJ before we came on. In some ways, it was kind of nice because my daughter was born three days before opening day. So we're in the hospital Monday night. We come home Tuesday night. Thursday is opening day. A lot of people talk about binge watching Netflix. I've just been binge watching MLB.TV. I mean, I've pretty much been sitting with the baby on the couch because newborns just kind of sleep and eat and do it all over again. From 10 a.m., the first pitches out here on the West Coast through about 10 p.m. at night. So it's been great. I've been actually able to watch more baseball than I have been when I'm typically working and have stories to write and podcasts to record. It's yeah, I, I've been watching a lot, but that's just I, I'm I, opening day was a little bit uh, frightening. I, I actually reached the point where it told you, no, 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 six concurrent logins, you know, from the same place is the limit apparently because. I did have a TV on, a uh, spare computer, and a phone, and uh, more tablets than I would like to admit because we have some old Kindle 7s around here. And yeah, um, it, it was a lot of baseball. And again, it's been fun to kind of keep, kind of keep in that routine. I mean, I'm, I'll, I will, I'm watching more Major League Baseball than I normally do because once the minor league season starts, I'll shift a lot of my watching to the minors but right now, no minor leagues and major leagues. Been fun that way. So we're going to break down what's to come in the American League. Again, there have been games played. Now it's been less than 10 games. We do not want to go too crazy. So there is still a lot here that kind of holds true with a preview. But we have learned some things about a few teams early on. I was going to say it's a feature, not a bug. I mean, we're doing a preview, but we could also do – we now have – one sixteenth or so of the season in the books. So that's a feature in that we now know things differently than we did. We had some injuries. We've had some breakthroughs, you know, some things we don't want to agree. We don't want to overreact, but there are things where if we were talking three weeks ago, we would be talking differently than we do right now. Yeah, we're about 5% of the way into the season, eight or so games out of 162. So there's a lot of baseball still to be played. We've already seen some overreactions and then some course corrections. It was kind of funny watching after the Red Sox got swept by the Orioles, all of Boston freak out, and then they've won six straight. So again, we don't want to overreact too much, but there's certainly some things that we've learned. JJ and I are going to break it down. We'll call it an American League Look Ahead podcast as opposed to a preview podcast. I think that fits here. JJ, before we dive into things division by division, what jumps out to you the most about the American League this year? Just kind of big picture as a whole. Big picture as a whole, I would say that there are some teams who, who early on look better than I expected. 
uh, you know, I, I think when we get to the Astros, I knew that the Astros were going to be good. I knew the Astros, I think I picked them to win the West, if I remember correctly. But, but they, they look better than, than I thought coming into the year. Again, we're eight games in, nine games in. It's not something where we're making massive sweeping, you know, generalizations and all. Um, the AL Central, which has been the, uh, the, the black hole of, of, of good baseball in a lot of ways for the last few years, uh, you know, especially the, the basement of it, that's been more interesting to me this year. Like I've had a lot of fun watching AL Central games. And I, I would say that pretty much every AL Central team is interesting in some way. I'm not saying they're all going to be over 500 when the season's over, but they're all interesting. And there were a couple years there where I, I think there were multiple teams in the Central who you could really, interesting was not be an adjective that you would ever use for them. So um uh, from that standpoint, those are two things that really do jump out to me. What about you? I think the biggest thing for me is just how far the American League has kind of fallen behind the National League in terms of talent, in terms of the overall quality of teams. And this is cyclical. It changes every couple of years. There's nothing permanent here. But you just look at how things were even three years ago. In 2018, the American League was so, so, so vastly superior to the National League the quality of the teams, the quality of the talent on the field. 2018, that was the year the Red Sox won 108 games, the Yankees won 100, the Astros won 103. The A's, who were the last wildcard team in the American League that year, won 97 games. That was more than any National League team. The fifth winningest team in the American League had more wins than any team in the National League. And we really saw it, the difference in quality side by side during that year's ALCS and NLCS I mean, it was like watching Division One college football on one screen and Division Two college football on another. That was the year the Astros and Red Sox were in the ALCS, and the NLCS that year was the Dodgers and the Brewers. That was the year the Dodgers needed a game 163 to outlast the Rockies and win the West. That was the year the Brewers needed a game 163 to win the division over the Cubs. So just the quality difference was so, so stark only three years ago in favor of the American League. And now we've seen something shift, and a lot of that's just player movement. Francisco Lindor has gone from the American League to the National League. Mookie Betts has gone from the American League to the National League. You look at the last couple Cy Young Award winners in the American League, the 2018 Cy Young Award winner, Blake Snell, he's now in the National League. The 2019 AL Cy Young Award winner, Justin Verlander, isn't pitching. He's out for the year after having Tommy John last year. So there's been a loss of talent in the American League that's moved over to the National League, star talent, I should say. And then we've also seen a lot of the best young players in baseball Soto, Acuna, Tatis, as they've come up, Acuna and Soto debuted in 2018, but they've really ascended to new levels in 2019, 2020, and so far 2021 as well, especially in the case of Ronald Acuna, Tatis coming up in 2019. And also we had a lot of American League teams this year not really do a whole lot. You think about the teams that really built up this offseason. It's the Padres. It's the Mets. The Dodgers went out and added Trevor Bauer. Now he was still in the National League, but the point is the top level teams in the National League got better. The Braves brought back Marcelo Zuna. They signed some key pitchers. Whereas in the American League, there wasn't a whole lot of movement. The Rays, A's, and Indians, who have been really good teams the last few years, all took big steps back. The Yankees lost Masahiro Tanaka and Jay Happ and replaced them with kind of injury bounce back hopefuls and Corey Kluber and Jamison Tyone. The Twins, they lost Eddie Rosario. They're still a really good team. I think they kind of held steady, but a lot of teams, and even the Astros who look really good, they lost George Springer. Just all these factors, a lot of the young talent being the National League, a lot of veteran talent moving to the National League, and then just National League teams being a little more active during this offseason. 
I mean, I really truly believe the three best teams in major league baseball reside in the national league. And I also think that five of the top seven reside in the national league. I really only see four teams in the American league that I consider to be true world series contenders. Whereas in the national league, I think you can craft a path for seven or eight. I, I agree with you completely that it does seem like that the, the strength of baseball right now is in the national league. Um, good thing for the American league is they get to play each other and it'll only be one American league team at the end of the day who is facing off in the world series, get, get, get right on a seven game series and who cares if you're not as good. But I think overall, I think it's really hard to argue right now that the talent of the American league matches the talent of the national league especially the key thing also on that is like the dodgers just look so good i mean it's kind of kind of absurd how deep their pitching is right now um they're i kind of feel like that their second string rotation would would look pretty good in comparison or at least favorable in comparison to some other teams. And oh, no doubt. <laughs> and, and then you throw in like, Oh, by the way, Zach McKinstry, I wrote up Zach McKinstry when he was in college and I talked to scouts who liked him, but they said like, this is a draft eligible sophomore who has zero power. And by zero power, he never hit a college home run. His isolated Slugging his isolated slugging percentage was 058 his sophomore year. That's like you are a singles hitter who does nothing else. Oh, by the way, the Dodgers draft him. He gets stronger. They work with him on his you know many things, and he develops into a guy who's slugging over 600 now. Of course, yeah, well, 33rd I'll, round I'll, pick. I'll say the good news is I was on him during the last couple handbook cycles. He's in the last two prospect handbooks. Uh, I highlighted him as the top rookie for the Dodgers in 2021. We ranked him higher than any of our competitors, just looking through some of the rankings. Uh, I had him in the top 10 of the Dodgers system at one point. You and I actually talked about this. So I had him in the top 10. I ultimately pushed him out and hated doing so because I'm just waiting for him to pull the Jake Cronenworth, Tommy Edmund. He's better than everyone thinks. And so far he looks that way, but this is the American league preview podcast. We'll talk about the Dodgers and all their player development marbles on the NL preview podcast or NL look ahead podcast. I should say with Matt Eddy, that's going to come up shortly. JJ, I want to dive into the American league East. You and I have had some very disparate opinions about the Tampa Bay Rays and how they operate over the years. We talked about it during the postseason last year in particular, the Rays are the defending American League champions. They had the best record in the American League last year. Do you still consider them a World Series contender? Because I do not, but I want to hear your take first. Yeah, I still do. Um, and I think when I look at this team, yes, they absolutely have lost um, some starting pitching depth from last year. And I think that is significant. I think that that is something that they're absolutely going to have to work around. The... Um, the early returns on who they brought in to replace those pitchers, not all that encouraging. Chris Archer, second start, uh, second outing, I should say, leaves the game, goes on to the IL. Obviously, he was an injury risk. Michael Waka, kind of another injury reclamation project. He has not been very good so far. He was pretty poor on Sunday against the, uh, the Yankees. At the same time, I, I will say, like, when you say how could, what could help their uh, pitching staff this year, saying that Brent Honeywell is going to stay healthy is a, is a big ask because it's been 
three years without him pitching in an official game. But Brent Honeywell, in his two innings, they pulled him after two, which was a little surprising because he was kind of cruising along. But Brent Honeywell looked really good. Brent Honeywell looked very much like Brent Honeywell in his MLB debut. Adding him to Tyler Glasnow looks like a fire-breathing dragon on the mound who should be in Cy Young contention this year. I think that Yarborough, Ryan Yarborough, I think that if you count on Rich Hill to give you 100 innings, I think you're good. If you count on Rich Hill to give you 150, you're probably asking a little much of him. I think the pitching staff will be okay. Um, I think the bullpen will be okay because they always figure out a way to work that out. And I just think that at the end of the day, this lineup's going to end up being even better than it was last year because they have some guys who are – young and in their primes and I think at some point this year they'll add a a certain Wander Franco to that as well which will give a nice little extra boost so just to get ahead of it the four teams I consider to be World Series contenders in the American League are the New York Yankees the Chicago White Sox the Minnesota Twins and the Houston Astros with one giant wild card in there and we'll get to them in a little bit but those are really the four teams I consider to be true World Series contenders I, I do not consider the Rays to be Um, here's why. So I will say I do expect their offense to be better than it has been in years past. You're going to get a big bounce back here from Austin Meadows. He was sidelined last year, had COVID, was never really 100%. Austin Meadows at his best is a all-star caliber starting outfielder, and he's a really, really good player. Having him healthy will be a boost to the offense. A full season from Randy Rosarena. As you mentioned, there's probably a Wander Franco call-up somewhere in there. Again, he's a rookie. There's going to be some ups and downs, but on the whole, he probably should out-hit Joey Wendell. I do think this offense will be better, but if you look at the Rays and what their formula has been during this run of success, back-to-back 90-win seasons followed by the American League's best record last year, it's always been elite pitching and kind of middle-tier offense. Uh, They were 12th in runs scored last year. They were 15th in 2019. They were 16th in 2018. This has always been a a middling, mediocre-ish, middle-tier offense. But each of those three years, they've been one of the top six teams in baseball in terms of ERA. It's been elite pitching, good enough offense. I no longer see an elite pitching staff. Tyler Glasnow is a stud. He's going to be in Cy Young contention. I spoke to a scout about that and put it in our spring training buzz notebook that I published before the year started. Ryan Yarbrough, you feel really good about. He's reliable. He's solid. He's going to do a good job for you. But you still need a hundred-ish quality starts from some combination of Rich Hill, Michael Walker, Chris Archer, and then you go down into Josh Fleming, who, who did well last year, but Brendan McKay, Brent Honeywell, who have major injury red flags, Shane McClanahan and Luis Patino, who have barely started above double A, and while they've made their debuts in relief, expecting them to carry the load as a starter over the course of a majority major league season, that's a big ask. I really see a raised team that has one ace, one solid back-end starter, and then you're just trying to piece together a majority season from a bunch of guys who are injury-prone, past their prime, or probably too young. I can see a scenario where they figure it out, win 87 games, and get the second American League wild card and are eliminated in the ALDS. I can also see a scenario where all those pitchers, again, just get hurt or have ERAs in the high fours, low fives, because they're not ready. And all of a sudden, you're looking at a team that's struggling to finish above 500. I think the Rays have earned the benefit of the doubt. 
and I wrote this in our season preview, where I think this is the team with the most downside among winning teams from last year. I can see this pitching staff completely imploding and being that mess that we talked about, but they've earned the benefit of the doubt. They might be able to piece it together, but I do think 87 wins is the absolute ceiling on this team, and they don't have the pitching to get them through the postseason. If you line up their rotation, unless they make a trade, and let's be clear, they can make a trade, acquire some guys, and this could change, but line up this rotation next to the Astros rotation, next to the White Sox rotation, next to the Twins rotation, they're going to have the lesser starting pitcher on the mound three out of four games in a postseason series. That's just not a recipe for success. That's not the Rays recipe for success. Again, they'll, they'll be fine. They're not going to be terrible. Again, I picked them to win a wild card spot because I kind of respect what they've shown they can do. But this is not the same caliber of team that posted back-to-back 90-win seasons and then the best record in the American League last year. This is this is not as talented of a team. Yeah, I, I mean, again, we disagree on that. We'll see. We have 150-so games to, you know, to go. Yeah, and by the way, when I say 87, look, maybe it's 88. I, if a bunch of injuries hit the Yankees, which we'll talk about in a second, and the Rays get it to 91, it's possible. But I think true talent-wise, that that is where I see them. And because of that, we as a staff, we did pick the Yankees to win the AL East. A lot of our staffers picked them to reach the World Series. A lot of the Yankees season is going to hinge on Corey Kluber and Jamison Tyone coming back and being the pitchers they were a couple years ago now. So Jamison Town and Corey Kluber have thrown a combined 74 innings the last two seasons. So far, it's been mixed. Uh, the reviews I got on Tyone in spring training from scouts were not great. The reviews I got on Kluber, both from his showcase and his spring training starts, were mixed. Um, again, really, really early. Don't want to go crazy. Kluber has, has not looked great, but again, it's early. He's coming back from not really pitching much at all last year through one inning. Uh, and Tyone, again, you're coming back two-time Tommy John surgery. It's very, very, very difficult. You feel really good about Garrett Cole. Jordan Montgomery, it's his second full season back from Tommy John surgery. He, he came back last year, but obviously it was a shortened season. So I think the second full year back, he will be better. He's had two good starts so far. But there's a lot riding. I, this offense is going to be good enough. They're going to score enough runs. But in terms of once this team gets to the postseason, because I think there's no question they're going to get to the postseason and win the AL East. They really need the best versions of Corey Kluber and Jamison Tyone to be there in order to get back to the World Series for the first time since 2009. And I honestly have no idea in the sense of I don't feel confident enough to say, oh, they're definitely going to do it or confident enough to say, oh, no, that's never going to happen. They're just such wild cards and giant question marks because they just haven't pitched. To me, you're more confident they're going to win the division than I am. I, oh, do I know. Look That's at, fine. You know, I, I think that they are absolutely, you know, I would say if you want to call them the favorite at this point. But I do think that this is division with the Rays. You know, again, they were the best record in the American League last year. I count them in that group. I also do look I, – I, now, the team I don't know if they have enough pitching is the Blue Jays. Agreed. But if they can find – if they can make a couple of moves to bulk up their, 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 their pitching staff, I love the lineup. I, I think the Jays that the lineup, the Yankees? The, the Jays lineup. I love the Jays lineup. I think that we are finally seeing Vladimir Guerrero Jr. This is the year where maybe he produces at the level – you know, that we expect and kind of, uh, you know, hope of long hope for him to produce. I think that, you know, you could get 
Bo Bichette. I think getting Marcus Semi and adding Marcus Semi was a useful addition for them. Oh, I just definitely. think that that's, I think that that's a team that, and by the way, playing in the ballparks that they're going to play in. Now it's a, it's a hurdle because they don't have a home. They're going to be playing in Dunedin and they're going to be playing in Buffalo, but they're going to put up runs. And so I just feel like that the East as a whole is, you know, again, I don't think, I know the Red Sox are leading the division right now. I'm less uh, optimistic that this is a Red Sox team that can keep this up. I don't think that this is really planned to be a Red Sox team to keep this up. Although if J.D. Martinez, you know, goes out of his mind for the next uh, five months, it sure would help uh, help them. But I do think this is a more, I guess I would say it's a more wide open division than I think how you envision it, you know, um, you know, as we, as we, here we are two weeks in. I just see a really, really good deep Yankees lineup. We've seen this organizational depth. They're able to pull guys up and get some production out of them. And I do think the pitching staff, Garrett Cole, Jordan Montgomery, there is some pitching depth here. They're going to get Luis Severino back theoretically, at least in the middle of the year. We'll see what he's able to give them. Clark Schmidt's hurt again. That's a blow. Uh, they did just option Domingo Herman. He looked really good in spring training. He did not look very good in his first couple starts. We have to see what Davey Garcia can give them. This is not a great rotation by any stretch, but I think this is a really, really good bullpen. Uh, hopefully Zach Britton's able to come back from his arthroscopic elbow surgery and, and be the type of pitcher we know he can be. That will help. But even without him, this is a really, really good bullpen. It's a really, really good lineup. I do think they have enough starting pitching given those factors to be a very, very good team. One thing I will be watching is the defense. Gary Sanchez, his issues have been well recorded on both sides of the ball. Uh, We know there's star level talent in there offensively. It's been an issue of consistency. It's off to a good start so far this year. Again, very, very small sample. We have to see if he can keep it up Um, and seeing what strides he makes defensively. And then Glaber Torres at shortstop, there's no sugarcoating it. He's a well below average shortstop. You're trying to survive with him there as opposed to thrive. But, you know, it's something where he does enough with the bat. You look at the defense around him. You have Gio Urshel at third. You have DJ LeMahieu at second. It's not going to be atrocious. I just want to kind of see what the defense looks like up the middle, the catcher and the shortstop. I do think this is a really good team. And as I mentioned, I think the Rays are – not as good as they've been and don't have the elite pitching that has been their key to success. And the Blue Jays, I'm glad you bring them up because I do think this is a playoff contender. We're going to hear this theme a lot. We've already talked about the Yankees and Rays and it's true with the Blue Jays and a lot of other teams, especially this year. It just comes down to not only pitching depth, but the Blue Jays are relying on a lot of pitcher bounce backs, Ross Stripling, Steven Matz, Robbie Ray, Tanner Roark, all guys who have had success but all of them struggled in a really, really big way last year. And it's something where if they bounce back, then yeah, I can see a scenario where they contend for the East. But I think it's hard to go out on a limb and predict all four of them to bounce back simultaneously. Yeah, they, they would need, again, I, I think that they're a team that if they're in it, it, it I, I kind of factor with everyone now that there are the moves that get made at the midseason that play a part in this. and. I think that they're going to have to make some moves at mid at the midseason. And the good news is they have the prospect capital to do that. And we've seen them be aggressive. 
last trade deadline, they went out, they got Ross Stripling, they got Robbie Ray, they traded for Tywin Walker. So we have a front office that's willing to make moves. They have the prospect capital to do so. So I do think they are a contender. I don't want to make it seem like they're not in it. They have the offense. They, they can bang with anyone in the American League. They were, I believe, third in the American League in runs scored last year behind only the Yankees and the White Sox. And then you add George Springer to that. Now, obviously, Springer is injured right now, but he'll be back. He's a great player. One thing I do like about the Blue Jays is the back of this bullpen. Uh, the bullpen was sneaky good last year. Matt, Eddie, and I talked about Jordan Romano after watching him in summer camp, being like, wow, this is a very, very different Jordan Romano. He's going to have a really big year. And he did. And Julian Merriweather is my all-time favorite. Who is this prospect? I've told this story before. Forgive me if you've heard it already, but uh, the 2016 Carolina California League All-Star Game. I had just started at BA, so I had no idea who the middle-tier prospects in the Indian system were. And Julian Merriweather comes out, starting for the Carolina League All-Stars, pumping 97, just blowing it by guys. I'm like, who is this? And kind of kept tabs on him since. And I'm not surprised to see him now blowing 99 out of the bullpen and looking like a a potentially elite-level closer. So you have Romano and Merriweather at the back. Ryan Barucki's turned into a 97, 98 mile an hour lefty out of the bullpen. Rafael Delis has had some good stuff. David Phelps is an accomplished veteran. So I do like this bullpen a lot. And I think that will help tie them over if their starters aren't able to have the bounce back years that the Blue Jays really need. No, I think that, again, I think that this is a team that uh, needs a little help, but with the bullpen, the lineup, put it all together. And if Nate Pearson can get healthy and make a big addition to their uh, rotation, if Steven Matz, who I would say of kind of their bounce back candidates has been kind of the, one of the worst recently, but also has probably more upside than many of the others. If he has a big year somehow, or there's some ways that they could, could get there, but there's definitely some more variability I would say with them than there is with the, uh, with the Yankees. And I would say even with the Rays. Yeah, Robbie Ray to me is one of the big guys. This was one of the better pitchers in the NL at his best with the Diamondbacks. You know, we talk a lot about pitchers and the changes they make and shortening your arm action is kind of in vogue right now. And and for good reason, it's worked for a lot of pitchers. But like anything else, it's just about finding what works for you. Everyone's different. Robbie Ray tried to shorten his arm action. It was an absolute disaster. His control, which was already not great to begin with, became absolutely disastrous. Now, it was better after his trade to Toronto. He's currently on the injured list, so we need to see what he looks like when he gets back and if he's back at full strength. But a lot of people were talking about his velocity uptick in spring training this year. And don't get me wrong. It's always nice to have a couple extra ticks of velocity, but what's much more important for him is that control. If he can even get it back down into that, you know, 3.9 walks per nine, 4.3, I mean, still below average, but when he's pitching at that, he's still been good enough because the stuff is good enough. But at last year he was at nine walks per nine with the D-backs and lowered it to six with the Blue Jays. He's got to get that down. The control is much more important than the velo bump with him. So that to me is kind of the X factor because if Robbie Ray is able to find the previous form he had with the Diamondbacks, that's a number two starter. Um, and I think just the track record he has of also logging innings, you feel a little more confident with him than maybe you do Nate Pearson, who has had durability questions about him since he's been a professional. And while he certainly throws gas and there's a lot of promise there, I think it's a stretch asking him to hold up over 150 innings, whereas Robbie Ray has done it multiple times throughout his career. You hit on the Red Sox earlier, and I think looking at what this lineup looked like in 2018 to what it looks like in 2021, it, it is a little bit sad. 
how far away is this team from forget the playoffs for a second, just getting back to a winning record because they had the fourth worst record in baseball last year. Uh, the guys they were throwing out on the mound, it was, it was bad. It was really, really, really bad. Um, Eduardo Rodriguez is back this year. You're hoping that Chris sale is able to come back mid season and regain some of his previous form, but how far away is this team from once again competing for division titles as we saw them do here at the end of the last decade? Uh, ways. Uh, to me, uh, if, unless they're going to start spending a whole lot of money, I, I'll, I'll boomerang the question back to you. How many players are there who you would say that's a fixture, not a guy who could be on the roster, but a guy who you look at and you say, that's a guy who – is absolutely a core type player on a playoff team. I'll give you Xander Bogarts as one. I'll give you Rafael Devers. I, I think as far as the position players, I, I like Bobby Delbeck probably more than most. I, I think Michael Chavis can play on a playoff team, but those aren't fixture type guys. I think those are the two. Uh, I look at the pitching staff and I think that there are not a whole lot of guys in the pitching staff either who are part of a, you know, the core of a playoff team. What about you? Alex Verdugo can be a core. He can be a starter on a playoff team. And I do think there are some bats in here that can bang. Um, but the pitching, that's the problem. And when you look at the Red Sox form system, what's the strength? It's bats. It's Tristan Casas. It's Jeter Downs. It's Bobby Dahlbeck, who's in the majors right now. They really lack arms. Jaron Duran, again, another position player. They need arms and mass, and it's going to take multiple draft cycles, multiple international signing classes, multiple trades to get the wealth of arms you need to be a playoff contender. So I, I think this is a team that is a couple years away. Now they have the resources to go out and, and make some moves and, and maybe bring some guys in if they choose to use them. Um, but it's, it's, it's not going to be a quick fix. This is a multi-year process. And speaking of multi-year processes, I want to wrap up the East with the Orioles. I want to put the same question to you, and we can actually have some fun with this. Who's better first, the Orioles or the Red Sox? And how long will it be until the Orioles have a, I forget again, a playoff contender, just a winning record? Am I crazy to think that they're a little bit closer? Again, now Boston has the financial wherewithal to change this on a moment's notice. And I, I think that the present players that are there for Boston are better. I would much rather have Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, and I'll give you, okay, maybe Alex Verdugo over Ryan Mountcastle, Trey Mancini, and... Uh, am I going with Cedric? Cedric Mullins has had a great first week, but I'm not going with Cedric Mullins. Am I going with, I, you know, I don't know who the, the, Anthony, the third... Sam, Anthony Santander is legit. Yeah. Okay. And I'll, and I'll say, you know, John means, you know, on the, on the, on the pitching staff, I, I probably, I like Boston better there. That said, I like Adley Rushman as far as who's the cornerstone of a, of a resurgent team better than and I like any prospect in the Red Sox. And it's not, it's not close when it comes to that. I, I look at right now, both these teams are going to continue drafting high, but I do think that the farm system for the, uh, for the Orioles is a little better right now has a little bit closer. It's close. I probably still say Boston just because I have seen proof that Boston will shove massive mountains of money in when they're in contention and they've done that successfully. But that said, it's closer than, 
than I probably would have described it at any time in the past decade if I was trying to compare the Red Sox and the Orioles. What, what do you think? I think the Red Sox are closer just because they have better players and more financial resources. And I do think that we will see them back to a winning record before we see the Orioles back. I can see a scenario where the Red Sox win 82, 83 games this year. I'm not going to pick them to do it, but I can see it. The Orioles, I, I have a very hard time seeing them winning more than 70 games. As far as how far away the Orioles are, I actually think this coming trade deadline is going to be very, very, very important for them in terms of determining how far away they really are. And what I mean by that is I want to go back to the Houston buildup, which Michael Elias and Sig Maydahl were a part of. As the Astros were toiling and terrible and trying to get everything back to a place of respectability, they had a couple of guys they kept through the ugly years. They kept Jose Altuve. They kept Dallas Keuchel. And both of them really jumped during the 2014 season. If the Astros had said, all right, you know, peak value, let's trade them and let's go, you know, let's go continue to acquire assets. They would not have made the playoffs in 2015. They would not have gone on to win the World Series in 2017 without those two. At a certain point, you have to keep guys to build around. And the Astros very wisely did so with Altuve and Keiko, who ended up 2014. What happened that season was not their peak value. Keiko went on to win the Siam Award in 2015. Altuve became an MVP in 2017. So if the Orioles trade John Means and Trey Mancini at the deadline, barring a blow them away package, I mean, if it's for, you know, top hundred guys or, or really, really, really elite level prospects, okay, yeah, pull the trigger. But seeing just how low the prices have gotten to acquire impact big leaguers, I don't think they're going to get that. And because of that, they need to keep these two to build with. Now, Mancini and Means are not Keiko and Altuve. They're both older. They don't quite have the same value, Altuve being a middle infielder, Mancini being a corner guy, first base, outfield. But these are two really, really good players who are the heart of the team. And Trey Mancini especially, that was true in 2019. I wrote a story about him at the 2019 trade deadline detailing that. Then you add in everything he went through last year with colon cancer. Seeing, I mean, to me, the most heartwarming moments of the MLB season have all been about Trey Mancini this year. That first road series in Boston, you know, getting a hug at first base. I think it was Xander Bogarts going back home, getting the ovation, not just from the fans in the stands, but everyone in both dugouts, the infielders, uh, the home runs he's hit. This is a really, really good player and a remarkable person. You cannot trade him. Again, if they get a blown away offer, sure, fine, whatever. But I will say this, if the Orioles keep Trey Mancini and John Means at the deadline, I can see a path where they bring up all their other young guys around them and they start being respectable again in 2020, not three, 2024. But if they trade these two guys, it's going to be longer. So the Orioles have a choice to make. I'm going to be very curious to see what they do if they try and actually start making moves forward, which they haven't done. They've been letting guys go via, via DFAs and non-tenders in the offseason who are valuable players. I mean, they're still trying to bottom out. I, I want to see what they do with these two because that's going to be the pivot point in determining can they realistically contend within the next three years. And I, I firmly believe if they trade them, the answer is no. I don't think that either of those two are that important to that because they're going to be, if you're talking 24, 25, Trey Mancini, I, I, hopefully he's a Nelson Cruz, and but Trey Mancini at 32, 
I don't think is necessarily a, a cornerstone type player. I do. Um, at 34, I don't. At 34 and 35, I don't. At 32 and 33, we see a lot of the really good hitters can still maintain to that. Like still, to I'm that not level. saying he's still going to be hitting, but what I'm saying is, is that, but at the same time, I think the key part of this is, is what you just hit on at the very end, which is they haven't been, <laughs> they have not tried to do anything to help the big league club for quite a while now. It, Putting Rio Ruiz as your everyday second baseman is nothing against Rio Ruiz, but that's like, oh, let's let's see if something sticks here. They have not really gone out and even said, hey, let's fish in the bargain pile and see if we can find some players who are going to help and maybe better than than who we have. They Time and time again, it's kind of been something where they just look at it and say, oh, let's see what we have. Uh, I guess you could say they, they brought in Michael Franco. That is shopping what I'm talking about. But very few times have they done even that. And the, the, the next free agent that they sign to a significant deal is going to be the first in, in quite a while. So, well, fun, And you mentioned the second base. They had a decent guy. His name was Hanser Alberto, and they just let him go for nothing. I mean, it was just, really? And they said, you know, I think Mike Elias came out and said it had to do with arbitration and how he's going to be valued. But really, you can't pay this guy $3 million? I just, that to me was was a mistake and something that did not reflect well in the organization at all. So we'll see what happens I mean, wait, there. By the way, uh, to, to put it this way in perspective, Chris Davis, obviously the highest paid player on the team. And when I say highest paid, it's not close. I mean, Chris Davis should pick up the check anytime anyone on the Orioles, you know, orders, uh, you know, Uber Eats or whatever, you know, as a group. But that said, after that, there is no one on this team making $5 million. That's amazing. Yeah, this is a bad team. And, and in part because of that, again, I am picking the Red Sox to be better before the Orioles are. Uh, the Orioles swept the Red Sox opening weekend. Red Sox fans were not happy, but the Red Sox came back and just swept the Orioles. So all is even in the world, and we'll see what happens. JJ, we're going to dive into the Central and the West here, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. All right, JJ, we've run down the American League East. Now we're going to jump into the American League Central. This is going to be, I think, the most fun division in baseball, starting with the Twins and the White Sox, two very, very, very good teams. Just straight up, who you got? I'm still going twins. I'm still going twins. I think that this lineup is really powerful still. Boom. You know, there, there is power all through Byron Buxton showing signs of being every year. I feel like with Byron Buxton, it's like, this is the year, this is the year that Byron Buxton's going to do it. And he has trouble staying healthy. He has, you know, bouts of inconsistency, but we are showing signs that maybe this is that year. But more than that, I also think that, that, that they have enough pitching. Um, I don't think that the pitching, I still, still would love to see, if I was a Twins fan, I would love to see one more arm added at the top end, and they, they, they haven't done that. They more, you're really counting on Berrios and Kenta Maeda but they did fill out the depth of it. You know, they did bring in, you have Pineda back, you have Shoemaker, you have Jay Happ, you have the Dobnaks and guys like that who can fill in as needed. I just think that there's still enough depth here. And 
I go back and forth with this. I think it's very close them and the White Sox. I do think the White Sox have more star potential, but I do think that that it may be that they're still – I think these are both playoff teams this year, but I think that it could be uh, it's still the Twins hang on and, uh, and hold off in a what I think will be a fascinating race. Absolutely. I mentioned I think these are two of the four true World Series contenders in the American League, and I picked the White Sox – to win the division before the year and actually win the American league. But it was very, very, very close with the twins. Now I made that prediction prior to Eloy Jimenez getting injured. And we as a staff did too. the final staff tally at BA had the white Sox finishing ahead of the twins in the central. I know for me, I consider it to be very, very, very close. And I think the loss of Eloy Jimenez for most of the year actually does tilt it back in the Twins' favor. If we were making the predictions post-injury, we, we, uh, we made the predictions pre-injury. Our magazine deadline went out shortly before uh, Jimenez got hurt. So uh, the picks had to be in before that. And after that happened, I, I do think that was enough to kind of flip it back in the Twins' favor. And a big part of that is you and I talked a few weeks ago on a spring training podcast about who's the MVP candidate that people aren't really talking about. And I said it was Corey Seager in the National League, and I stand by that. And I think he's absolutely going to be in the race and, and someone people weren't talking about enough. In the American League, my pick for that was going to be Eloy Jimenez. We saw him take some strides last year, and I, I thought there was a very real chance we were going to see 290, maybe even 300 with 30, 35, maybe even 40 bombs. I thought this was going to be the year that Jimenez took the jump and became one of the five, six, seven most fearsome hitters in the American League. And then he gets hurt. That's a huge, huge, huge loss. It's not easily replaceable. So I do think it tilts back in the Twins' favor. One thing that has raised my eyebrows a little bit in the early going is the White Sox's defense. It was absolutely disastrous in that opening series against the Angels. We all saw the ball bounce off Luis Roberts' head. Adam Eaton just whiffed on a fly ball. But there were a whole bunch of errors. And on top of that, there were a lot of plays that weren't technically errors, but there were a lot of choppers and ground balls in the infield that were not turned into outs. Now, it's early in the season. There's a lot of early season rust. A lot of teams make defensive mistakes early in the season. So it's not something I'm panicking about, but it's something I'm monitoring moving forward because – this is a team that was already, you're putting Andrew Vaughn in left field. Defense was going to be an issue in some spots potentially. And if the guys you were expecting good defense from, again, Robert Eaton, Madrigal at second base has had some rough plays over there. It could get even uglier. So that's something I'm going to be watching again. I'm not pressing the panic button yet, but I think it's worth monitoring to see if it was just early season jitters or if this becomes a persistent problem. Now, when you said you're, you know, sleeper uh, MVP candidates, I, I know that you were talking about Eloy, but um, I mean, at this point, you know, overreacting to the first <laughs> nine games, eight games, nine games of the season for the White Sox, it's clearly it's Yerman Mercedes who's hitting 536, 594, 857 at the time that we're recording this, which is um, simply absurd for, uh, again, it, yes, will that be the best 32 plate appearances of Yerman Mercedes' career? Sure. That said, that's 32 plate appearances. I, I would estimate that, you know, like coming into the season, if you told me that Yerman Mercedes was going to get 150 plate appearances this year total, I'd have said, oh, that's doing pretty well for him. Great. I, okay, I've got to stay true to me. Great minor league rule five pick of the White Sox there, Yerman Mercedes. You know, it's funny. I remember seeing him for the first time in 2018 at Winston-Salem. 
And he actually jumped out to me. He was hitting everything hard. He was scoring everything up. He was driving the ball to all fields. He was hitting all types of pitches. Everything looked really, really good. And a lot of people have talked about him not really having a position, and there have definitely been some receiving issues. But the other thing I remembered about him, in addition to just being a loud, loud bat, he had a cannon for an arm. And just to make sure I wasn't misremembering, I went back and looked. He threw out 41% of runners. It was strong. It was accurate. And he jumped out to me. Now, he was 25 in high A in his third season at the level. So you, you say, okay, he's looked really good, but I need to see this at double A AA and triple A before I buy in, just given the experience level. And once he went up and did that, that's when it got really interesting to me. And I actually wrote a story about him before camp shut down, the early going in 2020 spring training. It's up on the website where he was like, yeah, this is my time. Uh, obviously COVID shut down and the way the season went kind of threw a wrench into that. But I actually thought it was pretty clear before the 2020 season that he was probably going to win a bench job. A lot of the people I talked to around the White Sox said, yeah, he looks like he might be our our 26th man on the roster. Again, COVID kind of threw everything for a loop. He did make his major league debut, but didn't play much one game, one at bat. But it's good to see, again, just a guy who catches your eye and you kind of follow and seeing him have some success. It's nice to see, again, what is he long-term? I think he's a good contributor to the White Sox. I don't think he's probably going to be their number five hitter start to finish through the entire season, but at the very least, he's someone who can help this club and be a positive contributor. And anytime you get that from a minor league rule five selection, that's a huge win for your organization. Huge, (laughs) huge. I mean, there's no question about that. And they're going to need the other thing I'll say about them that is kind of, you know, on a kind of probably more significant for the longer term Michael Kopech looks great in the uh, White Sox pen. And I still think he's a starter long-term, but using him in that way is not a bad role because he can, he can affect a whole lot of games. Speaking of top pro- former top prospects who have had injury issues who look great, Carlos Rodon. Whew. Sitting 95, touching 98. Again, there's a lot of health history here. That's very, very scary. But if you just sit back and watch it, it's like, okay, this is the guy that everyone considered to be arguably the top prospect. Well, definitely the top pitching prospect in the 2014 draft. And, you know, when I talk to evaluators just about the draft every year, and we always talk about, oh, who's the good left-hander in this year's class, their comparison point is always Carlos Rodon. When they say, oh, what do I think of you know, Asa Lacey last year? Well, how does he compare to Carlos Rodon? Carlos Rodon is kind of the measuring stick for college lefties in a lot of these discussions I have with top-level amateur scouts. He was just that good, and injuries have sidetracked him, and, and now that he's pitching like this, I mean, you knew Lucas Giolito, Dallas Keiko, Lancelin was a heck of a top three in a rotation. Dylan Cease took some strides forward last year. You felt pretty good about the way he was trending. If you had Carlos Rodon to that, pitching the way he's pitching, this is the best rotation in the American League by a fair margin, I think. You add that to what I also think is the best bullpen in the American League. And oh, by the way, a really, really dangerous offense. That to me is is why I still think this is a World Series contender, even though I've said I think you give the Twins the edge here in the division with the Eloy Jimenez loss. This is still a really, really good team that as long as these defensive issues they've shown early get shored up, they're going to be in the race start to finish and and no one should put a ceiling on what this team is capable of accomplishing. Okay. So now 
the team we have not mentioned uh, about being part of this playoff picture is Cleveland. Yeah, who, and they've been a perennial part of this. They made the playoffs for the last five years. The year they didn't make it, they won 93 games. They're only one game out of first place last year. I wrote about this in the magazine. I thought they were the team that had the worst offseason. And there were a lot of teams who effectively pulled themselves out of contention. I thought the Indians were the most egregious just because they've been so good. This wasn't a team that's been in that no man's land of 84, 86 wins, as we've talked about. Three straight division titles, a 93-win season, and one game out of first place last year. And now I I think they're very clearly a third-place team. And I'm not going to go so far as to say it's a risk they drop into fourth place. They're still better than the Royals. But I do not consider them much of a contender anymore. Do you? I just worry about this lineup. And how painful does it have to be if you're Cleveland that Tyler Naquin goes to Cincinnati and Tyler Naquin has already out-homered every – well, if you don't count Framble Reyes as an outfielder for the – he counts the DH for the Cleveland last year. If you do that – Tyler Naquin has already topped the highest home run total by any Cleveland outfielder in 2020. And here we are a week and a half to two weeks into the, you know, not even two weeks into the season. Their, their, their outfield still just doesn't look all that productive. They've taken away, obviously, one of the best players in baseball, losing Francisco Lindor. That's not going to be ever easy to replace. I think the pitching staff's still great. I just don't think that they can score enough runs to keep up with with Minnesota and Chicago. You look at the Indians, and obviously they've built a reputation as a place that develops pitchers better than anyone in baseball. And it's a well-deserved reputation. They absolutely are that team. But when you look at the best years of this run, they weren't just a pitching-only team. They hit two in 2016, the year they made the World Series. They were fifth in the majors in scoring. 2017, another division title year. They were sixth. 2018, another division title year. They were third. This wasn't just a great pitching, mediocre offense team when they've been at their best. They were great at both. And we've seen the offense steadily decline the last two years. Now you take away Francisco Lindor from it. I mean, you're asking a lot from Josh Naylor, Jake Bowers, Andres Jimenez to simultaneously really, really take a big step forward offensively. And I just don't think it's that likely to happen. Um, again, you feel really good about Jose Ramirez. You feel really good about Fernando Reyes. I think Cesar Hernandez is one of the most underrated players in baseball. Bringing him back was a great move. I, I, I definitely like the Eddie Rosario pickup for them. I mean, it's not empty, but it's not enough. There's too many holes at the bottom of this lineup. And I think the biggest thing, that's probably the biggest gut punch is just the fact that the Indians have a lower opening day payroll than the Rays. I go back to the all-star game in 2019, the passion for both baseball and their hometown Indians that those fans showed was remarkable. It will stay with me throughout my career. I had never really been to Cleveland, didn't have a lot of experience there. You know, compared to the all-star games, D.C. in 2018, Miami in 2017, the cities didn't really care. They weren't that into it. There's other things going on in Miami and D.C. in the summers. The interest level was nowhere near what it was in Cleveland. That passion they had, I just, they, they deserve better than to have an opening day payroll less than the Rays. And to be clear, I don't put this on the Indians front office. If the orders are you have to slash payroll and you have to trade Francisco Lindor, 
they have to take their marching orders. The Indians front office has proven to be one of the best in Major League Baseball. But I think the fact that they had to operate under those constraints and essentially close their contention window earlier than they needed to, I think that's unfortunate. And I just, I really feel for the fans of Cleveland who I admittedly have some affection for just after watching and experiencing everything in that city during 2019 All-Star Weekend. So, okay, now we have the two teams that we don't expect to be part of the playoff race, but that we do see as being uh, more interesting right now, as I said earlier in this podcast, than they were before. We have Kansas City, we have Detroit. Both of them are showing some positive signs. I'll throw the question you asked to me about the Orioles and Red Sox. Which of these two teams do you think gets back to playoff contention to the playoffs quicker? I think the Royals get there first. I think the Tigers, when they get there, have a little more staying power. Now, the Tigers still need to add more. They're going to have another high pick this year. But you see the young pitchers they're producing. You see Spencer Torkelson. You see Riley Green. That's just a really, really good place to start. I like the Royals to some degree. I'm a big fan of Whit Merrifield. Again, I think he probably is the most underrated player in Major League Baseball. This guy's really, really good. He's also 32. Salvador Perez is about to be 31. Hunter Dozier is about to be 30. They're just a little bit older, and I'm not sure. I think there's a chance if Andrew Benintendi has a bounce back, their young pitchers continue to come up. If Bobby Witt and Nick Prado really, really maintain the strides they showed in spring training, if they keep all these guys, could they be a playoff team in 2022, 2023? Possibly. I could see a scenario where that happens but I don't know how long they would stay there just because the age of some of their guys, and there's still not a ton of position players in this system. There's some really good pitchers, but they need to add more bats. Whereas the Tigers, I think it might be 23. It's probably 24, 25, but when they get there and you look and you say, wow, we've got Mize and Manning and Scooble. And and I think they should keep Spencer Turnbull. He's really good. And who knows what else, what other moves they've made by then. You add in Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green, and potentially another high draft pick or two. Uh, they had a really good draft last year in terms of drafting bats. There's a lot of good bats to work with there. I think once the Tigers get there, they're going to have, again, there's a lot of ways this can go wrong, but I can see a path to them having a, a solid run of three, four, five years where, yeah, they're right there at the top of the division, whereas the Royals, based on what they currently have, I don't know if I can extend that window as far. What about you? Well, I think it all comes down to, you know, obviously a key part of the Royals is Bobby Witt Jr. Uh, That's (laughs) Bobby Witt Jr. Becoming a star is a absolute almost necessity to the Royals resurgence kind of rising up to being a, a, especially a playoff team that can be there multiple times. Uh, Nick Prado though is, I would say almost as important than that, in that if you look at Nick Prado's stat line, the last time that Nick Prado played in a full season, you would say, why are you mentioning Nick Prado? But you've seen it. You've written about it. I've seen it. There does seem to be some real improvement there that if Nick Prado actually is a high on base guy with some power, 
which again, statistical resume from 2019 says he's not, but he is a first round pick who seems to have made some real adjustments to his swing, to his approach. Kyle Isbell, they, they may have enough of these position players to go with the Merrifield, to go with an Alberto Mondesi who we haven't gotten to see yet. We, we haven't been able to answer that question, whether the Alberto Mondesi that we saw for the first two months of last year was the Alberto Mondesi or the Alberto Mondesi who was one of the best players in baseball in September last year or still more believe? likely sometime, some level in between that is probably what Alberto Mondesi is. Do you still believe in Alberto Mondesi? Oh, I think that there's still, I, I think that there still is a chance that Alberto Mondesi ends up as an above-average shortstop. In I, now, that said, I acknowledge all massive amount of risk that is involved in this. I don't want to make this sound like he is a sure bet, and I'm sure the reason that his extension fell through, you know, or hasn't happened yet, is is that. You want to extend him, but you want to extend him at a price that basically doesn't pay him for what he hasn't done yet because he hasn't been an above average, you know, shortstop yet overall. But that said, it is crazy. You probably know this. I'm probably, but how old do you think Alberto Montesi is if you haven't looked it up? Oh, he's 25. He's still young. And that's the hope. I mean, we've seen a lot of times guys get up to the majors when they're young, they kind of disappoint and people give up on them and then they blossom at 26, 27. I think a guy like that with the Indians getting Ahmed Rosario, that's an example of a guy like that. Alberto Mondesi, it's just, we're at almost 1200 career plate appearances. It's a career slash line of 251, 284, 415. There's a lot of stolen bases. He can run, but championship teams don't have guys in their lineup who have 280 on base percentages. They just don't. I I don't disagree. And it is something where you are really counting on him, that maturation kicks in, that his plate discipline improves. And you're still talking. A, A good Alberto Mondesi season is really we're talking more of a guy who let's say hits 275, 325 with power. So let's say, you know, 470 and plays, steals a ton of bases, plays good defense at short. That's what you're talking about. I don't want to make it sound like that he's going to be. Bobby Witt is the one who you could say, okay, he ends up being a guy who's a plus or plus plus hitter with plus plus power while playing shortstop or second base at a, you know, above average level. That's the star you're talking about potentially here, not Alberto Mondesi, but it is still that, that September he had last year, players who you have to have some talent to do what he did in September. It doesn't mean that that's his new level that he resides at, but it is something where it does offer an indication of just what is there if it all came together and again, they still need – the other thing is is they have a ton of pitching prospects. They have a ton of – now they have now a, uh, a rotation that I would say, to, to their credit, is reasonably representative right now and should get better. I mean, minor singer who didn't have a great first start, but you throw Bubik in there, you throw Daniel Lynch in there – they have a path to a rotation. You throw Asa Lacey in, the, Lacey in there before too long, 22, 23 at the latest. But we also know that there will always be attrition 
with a uh, pitching staff too. And so not all of those guys are going to turn out. Some of those guys are going to end up being relievers. There's still a lot of questions with this team. That said, it's the most interesting this team has been in a very long time. And I think one of the key minor things is, is and Matt Eddy likes to bang on this, they're starting to bring up guys like Kyle Isbell that actually get on base. <laughs> they need some on-base guys. And they haven't had a whole lot of those. Kyle Isbell is one of those guys. Bobby Witt Jr., who, again, we have such a small statistical resume of in games that count. But Bobby Witt Jr. is a guy who has a chance to be one of those guys. Nicky Lopez doesn't do a whole lot else, but when he's on, he's a bottom-of-the-order hitter who may be able to draw a walk if pitchers don't just basically have zero regard for throwing it down the middle when he's ahead and counts. They have guys like that. And, hey, the one other thing we have to mention, Michael A. Taylor is probably playing beyond his actual talent level. But that said, it's not crazy. Michael A. Taylor was a prospect coming up, kind of – got buried in the end of the day in, in Washington to DC because better guys came up or the guys that were perceived as better came up behind him. But if you told me that he's kind of this late career discovery, I, that's like, that would be a huge find for Kansas City. No question. He's been on fire these first seven games. Again, it's seven games. We have to see what he's able to maintain, but on the whole, I do think the Royals and Tigers, at the very least, are more interesting to watch than they've been in recent years. Uh, these are still the fourth and fifth place teams in the Central. I, I can maybe craft a scenario where the Royals sneak into third and, and maybe tie with the Indians, but I don't think it would happen. But they're interesting, and there's players here that you can say, okay, let's see what they do. Again, with the Royals, if Jorge Soler and Hunter Dozier have bounced back years, they signed Carlos Santana. That was another addition to try and help their on-base problems. He's 35. Obviously, he won't be there, at least probably won't be there when the Royals are, in theory, in the postseason again. There's no question. They're at least making moves to try and improve and get better as opposed to going headlong into the tank, which is the direction you want to see. JJ, going to wrap up with the AL West here. You mentioned earlier the Astros are a team that has been kind of, a, I don't want to say a total surprise in the sense that Look, this was the team we picked to win the West this year. Um, when you stack them up against everyone else, they are clearly the class of the division, and they've played like it so far. Do you see a scenario in which the A's or even the Angels really hang with them for the West? I don't, although let me wear one thing on my sleeve, which is, I can't explain to you particularly how Oakland manages to do this every year. I look at this team right now and I don't see how they keep up with Houston. That said, if you'd have asked me at this time last year or the year before that, or the year before that, and every year I look up at the end of the year and here's Oakland and they're pretty good. I, I don't, I don't see it. I think Houston is the class of this uh, division, but I will say I've been wrong before on that. So I'll take it the other way. I've been the guy that's been on Oakland. I picked them as the breakout team in 2018. That's exactly what happened. They broke out, won 97 games, made the playoffs. I believed in them and saw it, and they did it. I picked them to win the AOS last year, and I said it on last year's preview podcast, well, preview podcast 2.0 in the summer, that 
to me, it was a slam dunk. The Astros were not going to compete with the A's last year. And that's exactly what happened. Now in the postseason, the Astros beat the A's, but during the regular season, the A's ran away with it. So I come from the attitude of, I do see it and I do believe them. And then I look at it this year and I'm like, yeah, there's no way. The A's lost too much. The A's are a team that won 97 games back-to-back years. And then last year, we're on another 97-win pace. And from that team, they've lost Marcus Simeon. They've lost Liam Hendricks. They've lost Robbie Grossman. They only had Tom Lestella for a month, but he's a good player. And they let go. They hit the point where they've lost too much now. This is still a, a potentially decent team. They're not as bad as they've looked this first week of the season. Keep in mind, this first week of the season, they were playing the Dodgers and the Astros, the best team in baseball and arguably the best team in the American League. On top of that, they were kind of walking wounded. Ramon Laureano and Sean Murphy got hurt in that first series, missed a couple games. Chad Pender's been out. Mike Fires has been out. Trevor Rosenthal is out uh, now longer than anyone hoped he'd be. So they haven't been at full strength. They've played arguably the two best teams in each league. They're not as bad as they've looked. But this is no longer a 98-win team. This is similar to the Rays. This is an 86-ish win team. This is an 87-ish win team. We're trying to get the final wild card spot. I've made it clear. I think we have four teams that are locked into the three division winners in the first wild card spot. That final wild card spot, it's the Rays, the Jays, potentially the Indians, the A's, the Angels, all trying to get it. And they're all probably in that 86, 87, 88 win range. Maybe whoever can sneak into 90 wins with good health might be who gets it. So to me, the Astros are the class of the division. And one of the interesting things I want to talk to you about, because this is another one of your your guys, so to speak, is Miles Straw. So the Astros were a sub-500 team last year. They turned it on the postseason, came within a game of the World Series. They lost George Springer, who is a bona fide superstar in this league. Miles Straw has replaced him. So it's kind of funny because on the one hand, you say, well, they're a sub-500 team. They lost one of their best players. It seems weird to say it'll be better this year, but they get Jordan Alvarez back. I picked Kyle Tucker as my breakout. We've seen a lot of their young pitchers take a step forward, so there's some strides there. Realistically, what can they expect from Miles Straw? Because he's not going to replace George Springer, no. but you know him very well, and, I mean, if he's able to just be a good contributor, that's all they really need. He's a bottom-of-the-order guy uh, i think there's no question about that but one who could easily le- i think he could lead the american league in steals if, if they let him run now the the number that you need to lead the league in steals these days is not what it used to be but if he can do that play solid defense and center the great thing with them is, is with this lineup with jordan alvarez back they don't need him to do a whole lot more he can he doesn't need to be a key offensive player he needs to be a role player on this team yes that will not replace george springer but they're not expecting Miles Straw to replace George Springer. They're expecting the production of Jordan Alvarez to replace, replace Miles, uh, replace George Springer, I should say. They're expecting Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman, Jose Altuve, Michael Brantley. That's still a really deep lineup. And you put that all together, I get Yuli Gurriel as well, who's – who's the ageless Yuri Gurriel at this point, we have to say. He's one of the older players, regulars in, in baseball now. But it's still a really deep lineup. And the other thing for them, they have shown this is the pitching staff that the key thing that we saw for them happen in 2020 was by requirement. They didn't have a choice but to turn to rookie after rookie after rookie 
both in the rotation and in the bullpen. And I think that they're going to kind of reap some of the benefits of that this year. Christian Javier was just sent down to the alt site to kind of stay stretched out. There aren't a whole lot of teams in baseball who would have Christian Javier do what he did in his first two starts and then say, oh, by the way, Jacob Rizzi's coming off of the uh, off of the triple uh, off of the outside to pitch, so now we're going to send Javier down. He'd be in the middle rotations for a lot of teams the way he's performed and the way that he performed last year too. This isn't like he hasn't done this before. So we talked at the very start of this podcast about, oh, you know, we don't know if Toronto, oh, we don't know with uh, Tampa Bay. Christian Javier would be number three starter, number four at worst for those teams, and he's right now almost surplus for Houston. There's a lot to like here. There is. And I think they might be the favorite. I don't want to go that far because I think that the White Sox are really, really good, but I think the Astros are, are certainly in the mix to get to the world series and represent the American league uh, hitting on Miles straw. This is the perfect situation for him. He can hit eighth or ninth, and just try and get on base, turn the lineup over and you're fine. They don't need him to be a leadoff hitter. Uh, you know, it's a, Career 328 on base percentage. You want that to be a little bit higher. I will say the one time he got the most playing time he's ever gotten in 2019, that on base percentage was 378. So if, if he can just, again, get on base enough at the bottom of the lineup and play good defense in center field, that's all they need. They're fine. You mentioned the Astros pitching, and we've seen over the last two years Christian Javier, Framber Valdez, and Jose Arquiti come up and have success as starters. And you and I have talked about this. That completely altered the Astros' timeline of contention. Before these three came up, the Astros had a reputation just among player development officials, among opposing scouts, as being able to draft and develop pitchers who looked really good on paper, trackman data, et cetera, for trades. But in terms of actual effective major league starters, it was a really, really bad track record. You essentially had Dallas Keuchel, who predated the Lunau regime, Lance McCullers, who was the first draft of that regime. And after that, very, very, very few pitching successes, despite a lot of guys being drafted. You know, Daniel Mengden, Patrick Sandoval, you know, maybe they've had some success in spurts, but not really. So that was the rub on the Astros is they don't actually develop good major league pitchers. They develop good trackman pitchers who look good for trades. But that's really changed. This, the ascension of these three has changed that reputation, if you will. And I think most importantly, I think a lot of us assume that once Verlander and Granke kind of aged out, their window was going to close just because they wouldn't have had the arms. Now, all of a sudden, if you say, okay, even if Granke leaves after this year, Verlander's obviously out you can still go McCullers, Urquidy, Valdez, Javier, and, and they signed Jacob to a two-year deal. All of a sudden, that window that people thought was going to close after 2021 appears wide open in 2022 and probably beyond. I think the bigger question right now with them is, is okay, so what's going to happen with the lineup? Carlos Correa is a free agent at the end of the year and seems quite clear that he's going to hit free agency. And at this point, it seems like the, the Astros approach, he will not be back likely. I mean, again, you don't want to go too far right now, but the numbers that they were offering him versus what he's looking for were seemed to be very far apart. Um, that doesn't mean now they still have Bregman locked up long-term. They have Altuve locked up long-term. So I don't want to make it sound like they're not going to have anyone, but 
But the reality of it is, is that they have some, this team is a team that is getting older, is getting more expensive. So if you have Granke and Correa and, uh, you know, M Verlander, who's pretty much at this point done with this current contract, he won't pitch this year. That's a, that's a lot to replace in, in one year, but they still do. I don't know who in the uh, AL West is, is going to be ready to replace them. Well, we talked about the A's and kind of the direction they went and, and some of the things that they did in this offseason. Again, I go back to, and it's a little bit difficult because they had to move some money around, but Marcus Semien signed a one-year $18 million deal to go play for the Toronto Blue Jays. The Oakland A's gave $18.05 million to Trevor Rosenthal, Sergio Romo, Yusmero Petit, and Mitch Moreland. It's important to have bullpen depth. You got to have it. Don't get me wrong. But what Marcus Simeon gives you offensively, defensively, and in that locker room, you'd much rather give him $18 million than that quartet $18 million. And that was before Trevor Rosenthal's injury. And again, the timing bit's a little messy because that $18 million wasn't freed up until they swapped Chris Davis for Elvis Andrus. And if you have Marcus Simeon, you maybe don't acquire Elvis Andrus. So there's some complications there, but the net, is a loss. You're spending the same amount of money, that $18 million for lesser performance than you would have gotten. And that's, that's something that hurts the A's outlook. I mentioned that I thought there were four teams who were true World Series contender with one giant wild card. That wild card is the Angels. It's the same conversation we have with them every single year. If the pitching stays healthy, because let's be clear, the Angels were a top 10 offense in baseball last year when Justin Upton didn't give them anything until the very end of the year and Shohei Otani was a mess. Both of them have come back this year looking vastly better physically, their swings, their approaches. Both of them are going to have big years. Otani's going to be an MVP candidate as long as he stays healthy. But they need Shohei Otani. Griffin Canning, and Andrew Heaney to stay healthy as pitchers. If they do, this is a team that can, I don't want to say win the West. I think even if that happens, the Astros are a better team. But it'll be closer than it has been. And I think they become the favorite to take that second wildcard spot. But if these three who have a lot of injury history issues all get hurt, you feel fine about Dylan Bundy as your one, but Jose Quintana and Alex Cobb, you don't want them as your two, three. You want them as your four and your six. I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical. I am too. I, just as history, I'm skeptical. I, I'm skeptical and I'll probably remain skeptical. I, and I, I don't disagree with anything you said there that there's the possibilities. Now, I'll throw this question again, the same question. We'll do it a third time. Seattle and Texas. I think this one has a clear answer, but I want to maybe you disagree. Seattle and Texas, who gets back to uh, contention first? Long-term, give me Seattle. There's no question about it. In terms of who might have a winning record first, I, I don't love either team's odds. I think they're both at least a year or two away. Here's what I'll say about the Rangers. That intrigues me just a little bit. Joey Gallo showed in 2019 he was making some positive strides forward. Then he got hurt and wasn't able to finish out the year. 2020 happened, he fell backward, but, but a lot of guys fall backward. 
2020 was a mess of a year. Early here in 2021, he looks a lot like he did in 2019. It's much better control of the strike zone. There was a 95-mile-an-hour fastball Chris Paddock threw him the other day that he stayed on and just drove hard the other way. He didn't try and pull the ball because if he pulls that, all that happens is it's a rolled-over ground ball to the second baseman into the shift. Stayed on it, drove it hard the other way. We've seen Joey Gallo mature as a hitter, less chasing, using all fields better. He's always going to be a pull hitter, but it's not so pull only as it used to be. I think if that continues, I like the additions of David Dahl and Nate Lowe and Dane Dunning in the offseason. Isaiah Kiner-Falef is a nice player. I think right now they have enough young guys that I could see a scenario where next year with some pitching additions, maybe they get to 82, 83 wins. Whereas the Mariners, again, I like Kyle Lewis. I I like Mitch Hanniger, but they're going to trade him. Ty France can hit defensively. We have to see what he's really able to do. And I, that pitching staff's really a mess. It's Marco Gonzalez. You know, Justice Sheffield was better last year, but it's not great, which is really a long way of me saying, I like the Mariners' long-term outlook significantly better when Jared Kalanick and Julio Rodriguez and Logan Gilbert and all those guys rise. But I can see a scenario in which the Mariners, th- those guys need a little more time to marinate. The pitching takes a little longer to get up. And the Rangers have more guys right now where you can find a scenario where they get to 82 wins before the Mariners do. But long-term, give me the Mariners, no questions asked. I'll take Seattle both ways. Short-term, long-term. I I think, I just think that uh, I, I look at that outfield and I think that outfield could be be really good. I also look at their pitching development and I think that they have a chance. George Kirby, guys like that, they've, they've gotten guys who look like they're getting better developing in their system we have to see them get all the way there but that said i'm i'm kind of encouraged and so i, I kind of look at them and say yeah I, I think in both ways it's it is rough luck for texas you open a new ballpark that's where the newness of a new ballpark is supposed to be where you get this massive revenue bump that you then use and take advantage of and obviously they're not going to get that in the same way uh because they op- opened it in 2020 and uh they had fans for the playoffs, and that was it for the for a couple of rounds of postseason. That's it. Hey, they they did have a full stadium for open yes. day. That was yes, uh, that was quite a sight to see. Yeah, again, I. But I yeah, but I I just think that long term though I don't. I think that they have further to go uh, than agreed. Seattle does right now, and and I also think with that that they've got to show that they can keep guys healthy coming up through the minors, and that's been a real problem for them. No question. Yeah, I mean, again, I think there's some more in the bullpen to work with. I like Dane Dunning. I get Mike Fultonevich as a buy-low candidate. But again, we just saw them get no-hit by Joe Musgrove. Props to the first pitcher to ever throw a no-hitter in San Diego history. That was awesome. But again, I just, you know, Dahl, Gallo, low, Solak's okay. Kiner Falef has done some good things. There's enough bats here where I can, I can see something. But again, you really have to stretch. There's no great faith in either prediction here for the Rangers. All right, JJ. Well, that pretty much wraps up our discussion of the American League. And I do think there's going to be a lot of really interesting developments this year, just in terms of, of really the trade deadline. Everything we've talked about is rosters as they're currently constructed. We see every year injuries, and that's going to be especially true this year with so many players building up. There's been a lot of focus on the pitchers, but a lot of the position players too, I think we'll see some fatigue set in early and we've already seen some big position players go down with injuries. It's going to change a lot. So I I do think 
any and all predictions, you always want to take them with a slight grain of salt, but I think you have to take it with an even larger one this year just because of the unknowns for position players and pitchers going from 60 to 162. Yeah, it's it's going to be a fun and fascinating season, partly because it's just nice to have 162 again. I like 162 more than 60. I like having baseball as a near constant companion over many months. And the great thing about it is if you work at Baseball America, if you love college baseball, if you love high school baseball, if you love the draft, if you love international baseball and all that, it's not just a constant companion from April 1st to the end of October. But that said, having that, having that fact that when we get done with this podcast, I'm going to flip on MLB TV and see, okay, wait, are there any afternoon games today? Cause I don't know yet, but I'm assuming that there probably is this early in the season that just constant of having baseball on really is just a fun part of, of the day. And I, I love that we will have that for a 162 game full schedule for the major leagues this year. Absolutely. When April 1st rolled around and opening day was here, I just was very happy. It just felt right. Baseball in the spring, something we took for granted before last year. Now we certainly don't. And it just felt right again. JJ, thank you so much for joining us. A lot of fun getting back on here with you. We have a lot of great content coming up at Baseball America and uh, we'll have more podcasts coming out soon. Sounds good. All right, everyone. That'll do it for another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody.